Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. Jan Zalagi is the CEO and co-founder of Toggle AI, a generative AI startup that uses machine learning to turn institutional grade data into insights for investors of all stripes. Zalagi spent most of his career with Stanley Druckenmiller at Duquesne Capital. He was co-CIO of Global Macro at Lombard Odier and also managed portfolios at Fortress under Michael Novogratz. Jan has a PhD in economics from Harvard and BA and MA degrees in mathematics and economics from Yale. I was very eager to talk to Jan about his cutting edge work of actually applying artificial intelligence to help portfolio managers and analysts. When I first met Jan three years ago, he was already ahead of the curve in using advanced models to digest huge amounts of investment data and prices in a way that was useful and didn't require data science training to use. We talk about Jan's experience at Duquesne and Fortress, the founding of Toggle AI, hiring AI talent, and how to speed run a PhD. Please enjoy my excellent conversation with Jan Zalagi. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or host should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. I don't usually do this, but I think it's relevant to the discussion today. Tell me what you were like as a kid. Were you a big reader? Did you get into computers early? I did. Yes to both. I think reading probably came directly from my parents used to read quite a lot. So I think that was a big part of it. Computers, I think, was probably more just because everybody else in school was doing it. So I think it became something that you had in common with a lot of other kids that were also doing this. And getting into computers, to be specific, really was mostly getting into computer games. So let's not you know make this sound too sophisticated. What games were you playing back then? Mm-hmm. I think actually a lot of the series that are still around, but they've obviously evolved um, over time. So there were strategy games like SimCity or there were like early versions of Zelda. So, I mean, there were any number of games that you're seeing now that look incredible. I guess I would have played the early versions that looked by comparison crappy, but they were no less fun. Are you still into gaming? The short answer is yes, but I don't really play almost at all. I'm really hoping for a moment when that can change and make space for it again. But I think it's really hard to justify it now. Yale mathematics. Did you know that was going to be your field? I did to an extent. Going into the university, you do have the ability and the kind of the siren song of all these other things that you could be doing. I went to a math and science high school, which meant that you had this immediate sense that was the strength that you should capitalize on. Once you then end up taking other courses like history and so on. There are momentary considerations of doing something else. But I think in the end, I just went back to what I knew the best, which was effectively math. And I took some quantitative economics courses along the way, which didn't seem very different from math, except that they gave some descriptions to all those variables like X and Y. So you never thought about doing anything else? There was probably a moment that lasted no more than a year where I thought maybe it would be fun to do medicine. Yale had this very large hospital attached to it, the Yale New Haven Hospital, and they would allow undergraduates to shadow doctors around the hospital and see what that was like. The goal being that you could have an early insight into whether or not you wanted to do a career in medicine before you applied to med school. I did that and I actually really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it enough to want to switch from things like math because it seemed like the hours were going to be long and at the time of the day that most other people are either having fun or sleeping. But it did. It was a serious consideration for at least a few months there. What was uh, compelling about it? I think similarly to when you're trying to think about, this might seem like a stretch in terms of analogy, but when you're trying to think about an investment opportunity, there are a lot of things you're trying to diagnose, trying to figure out what's happened with the economy, where it's headed, what the likely outcome is going to be. And then on the basis of that, you'll make an investment. It felt like a lot of what I saw in the hospital was basically bringing to bear a lot of the experience, but ultimately still having to make sometimes an educated guess. It was never certain that the doctor was right in their assessment. Obviously, a good doctor will be right quite a lot, as will a good trader, but it's not like it was just a checklist and said, okay, great, these six things is what we're looking for. It's more like, okay, we have these six things. These are the three possible things that could be the problem. 
And then you just keep narrowing it down the same way as, as an investor will keep probing and trying to collect more evidence. So it seemed like evidence-based decision-making that had a lot of appeal. And because I was in the emergency room, it also tended to happen much like it does on the trading floor, usually under time pressure, right? You didn't have time to be like, all right, let me now take a month and think about this. It was more like in the next 10 minutes, I have to decide if I'm going to make that incision or not. And if I don't and I'm wrong, the patient dies. And if I do and I'm wrong, the patient might be permanently scarred and there will also be problems. So it felt like you were always faced with these decisions under a lot of uncertainty with limited amounts of data and you have to make them fast. And you get immediate feedback. And you get immediate feedback, which I guess here is where the analogy breaks down because obviously trading, no matter how important we obviously consider it to be, it really is not a matter of life and death, at least not in most situations. Were you ever drawn to mathematics as a career and to getting into the academic aspect of it? I did consider it and I did go to graduate school. And I guess part of going to graduate school is you are supposed to convince the committee that lets you in and the committee that lets you graduate that you are having at least some vague interest in academia. I would say initially it was genuine. I think towards the end, I was entirely faking it. And so I was doing some finance. I was also doing a little, some financial macroeconomics. It increasingly felt like a lot of the discussions that we were having, a lot of the paper seminars that I would have attended, that they were often in their own world. Sure, there was the initial idea and the initial problem might have come from the real world, but then the way you would model it, think about it, the way people would question the assumptions behind it to make sure that the model was mathematically watertight seemed increasingly disconnected from reality because you ended up with a very distorted and oversimplified framework for some real world problem that didn't seem like it stood any chance of being useful for either forecasting or really any kind of decision making. And so you could create what was mathematically quite a nice edifice that you constructed. I just, that felt not satisfying to me. Like I felt like if you were to do something, you should be able to use it in some kind of real world situation. And that really wasn't the case with a lot of the stuff that I was doing. It's not true of all of economics. So I don't want to Paint this with a super broad brush. It was true of some of the things that we were doing on the macroeconomic side. I think there are certainly examples on the micro and game theoretic side that I think have had very real world implications. There were also some of the behavioral studies that I think helped, although we seem to be now increasingly finding out how many of those experiments were done with made up data. And so maybe the applicability was taken too far. Um, but in my corner of that universe, it felt like it was very theoretical. It's 20 years on now. How would you describe the econ department then? It was, a, an, it was an impressive department at Harvard. Summers was president. Greg Mankey was there. Ken Rogoff, Schleifer, John Campbell. Which schools were dominant and how has that played out? That's a good question. I don't know if I can really pin a school thought that was dominant because I think, first of all, the department itself is very large and it had some actually not some, I think they were all really first-rate minds that were trying to solve a variety of different problems. The area that I was in, I ended up working mostly with Rogoff, Campbell, and Schleifer, who were just outstanding as advisors, was really focused a lot at the time on some of these either exchange rate models or some of the asset pricing models. Specifically, the research that I got involved with was bankruptcy prediction, we were trying to understand to what extent is the market really appreciating the probability that a certain company will go bankrupt? In other words, are you rewarded with excess returns, the way theory would suggest you should be, when a company actually is potentially teetering on the brink of going bankrupt? And the short answer is, but it depends, <laughs> which was the answer a lot of those times, but we were effectively able to find that the market did indeed demand some excess returns for those, but not really, not nearly enough. In fact, it would have done better if you were ultimately buying the better companies and discarding the ones that were most likely to go bankrupt because the returns that you did earn, even though they were a little bit higher, were not entirely compensating for it. It was interesting. It gave you 
for somebody in my position, it gave you a lot of appreciation for how much value there is in data that you can create and generate some really interesting insights. So I think it planted a very early seed in what ultimately became Toggle because I think it made me appreciate the fact that if you put in the work, you can sometimes uncover some really interesting patterns, relationships, and so on. And I think that was then just reinforced also afterwards on the investing side, because I was lucky to join and work with Stan Druckenmiller, who was always very diligent about going back in history and trying to understand what the data could tell us about what's happening today. So we, before we get to Druckenmiller, you famously figured out how to speed run a PhD at Harvard, earning one in two and a half years. Do you have any advice to people on how to get a doctorate quickly? <laughs> I think this goes back to your question about wanting to stay in academia. And I think that once it became clear that I did not want to, all of my energy was effectively going into trying to figure out, okay, how do I now go back into the real world investing and so on? But I would say that alone would not have been enough if I hadn't very early on been engaged by the advisors I was mentioning before, who just saw a lot of value in early on starting to do original research as opposed to the normal courses, you spend the first two years really just getting the foundation in economics, right? So you take a lot of classes, you do a lot of math, you do a lot of statistics, econometrics, and so on. And then you're ostensibly prepared to do original research. You can do it the other way, however, and this is what they believe, which is just start with a problem, right? You'll, better, you'll get better equipped to solve it over time, but you don't need to do it in that sequence. And so by the time I was done with the two years of classes, I had already had two papers that I needed for the three for my thesis. So it became really just a matter of completing that last one and then you're done. I'm curious, uh, just anecdotally, what happened to your colleagues, the other students who were studying at the time? Did a lot of them go into the street? Did a lot of them end up in academia? They did. The majority definitely went to academia. There were a number that went into policy. So I'd say the pol between policy and academia, probably two-thirds of the people ended up in, and the majority of those would have been academia more than policy. But they became um, finance ministers. They became heads of central banks and so on. It definitely, it's a program that has a very good reach and so the international student body that was in it, there were, I think, 20 plus of us in a single year, would have then gone back and done something very interesting in the country that they came from. Then there were a small minority that would have ended up in financial markets. And so there were people who would go into investing hedge funds and so on. And I think they stayed there. Do you think economics is still a good path to the street? Would you do it again? I think it's a very indirect path to the street. I don't think that if you already know that you wanted to go to Wall Street, I don't think that you want to do what I did. I think that was purely for kind of intellectual indulgence. I don't think that it was in any way something that was either required or necessary. You could have learned a lot of the stuff that I ended up using, just again, doing. It ended up being helpful insofar as it does give you certain frameworks and it gives you ways of learning and looking at the data that is helpful. But again, if you worked with, and there are research departments inside some of these banks, you could have learned the same thing. And if you were going to be a portfolio manager, actually probably you want to avoid this program altogether because what they really want to do is understand individual companies more than develop macroeconomic models. So then you went to work at Duquesne. I'm, I'm interested in not only what lasting takeaways you have, obviously, from working with someone as, as interesting as Druckenmiller, but what bottlenecks did you see in research at that point? What was it like to shift? I know you worked on the street, you went into academia, and then you went back to the street. But what was that shift like? I think the main, I think Larry Summers said something to that effect, but basically he said that the main difference between real world in economics is that in real world, you don't really get to pick your problems. You just have to solve what you're facing, right? That often means that whatever you're faced with, you do your best to try to find the answer to it. And then a, a decision, if a decision needs to be made, whereas in economics, you could spend a lot of time just thinking about what's the problem that would be most fun to work on. And so the main difference, I think, was simply that when I started with Stan in 2005, when I came out of Harvard, and soon thereafter, 
we started spending a lot of time thinking about housing because that was the kind of the theme that was increasingly starting to emerge insofar as people started to look at mortgage underwriting and so on. And by 2007, I think there were already quite a lot of people who worried about where this was headed, what it was going to cause. If you were in investing, you had to spend some time on that. You couldn't just say, oh, you know what? I would be much more interested in now studying where we could be investing in Brazil. Because the realization that most people increasingly came to was that there was an event brewing on a macro scale that was going to systemically impact virtually every other trading theme. So it doesn't even matter how much work you would have done on iron ore mining you were ultimately going to get swept up into the turmoil that ultimately became the global financial crisis. And so if you had not done your homework, if you didn't understand what the risks were, if you didn't understand or try to think about the timing for it, you were in a lot of trouble. Were you there for 08? Yeah. Yeah. It was when you're at a global macro fund, these events are ultimately what global macro funds were created for. This really is the time when as a macro investor, you are trying to really think about the tide going in and out as opposed to the individual ripples. And I think some people end up being really good at ripples because they understand companies and managements really well. You are trying to just figure out what is the big underlying trend that's ultimately going to impact all of these things. Like, for example, you might really understand the product demand for every single Apple product and so on. But if we go into a mega recession, the entire demand curve is going to shift down brutally. And so your models are going to be totally off because you will simply see demand for virtually everything dry up during that time as people lose their jobs, as income growth basically comes to a halt and so on. So those moments, and we've since then had quite a lot more, were absolutely the kind of periods that as a macro investor, you spent a lot of time thinking about trying to understand the connections between the banking system and the lending and the and consumer debt and so on. And then when did you move to Fortress? So basically, I ended up joining Fortress um, after a few years in London. I was introduced to Mike Novogratz through a mutual friend. We had a really good conversation. He was looking to beef up his, let's call it macro muscle. Hence, I ended up joining there in 2013 and had a really interesting experience because the approach that Fortress took was still global macro, but it ended up being much more short-term or much more active in terms of trading around these themes. So very actively, even intraday, we would often look at changes in price and see that as potentially an opportunity. That was in pretty stark contrast to the approach that we took at Duquesne, where the view was over the next six to 12 months, this is what you expect will happen. You find two or three of your highest conviction positions and you just sit on them. doesn't mean that you don't change your mind, but you typically, like the strong opinions weekly held. But the idea was that you would not try to trade intraday unless there were really big dislocations. Fortress had more of a prop trading desk mentality where the idea was that you could sometimes profit even of 50, 60 basis point moves in some of the currencies, so long as you were fast enough and you had the execution muscle to do it. But that interferes with your time for research. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. This was not like we were basically trigger happy and trading all the time. It was more just the fact that there was definitely a much higher proportion of the day spent on actually looking at the charts, looking at the Bloomberg screen and really figuring out whether or not there were some dislocation that were caused by a big asset manager who was deciding to get out of a position. And so that gave you an opening to effectively get into more of your position at a slightly better price than if that was not happening. But again, you would still spend time discussing and thinking about research topics. We would have regular research meetings where a lot of these things were discussed. It just felt like a lot of the trading positions were much more actively maintained than adjusted. So again, what's fascinating is you get a lot of feedback versus sitting back with a strong conviction. Yeah. And it's ultimately the horizon might have ended up being the same. You may end up in the course of six to nine months, even though you would have gotten in and out of, let's say, a euro dollar future position several times. 
you would still directionally always be getting in as, let's say, a lawn, if that was the view. But it just ended up being that you would try to trade both the tide and the ripples, if that makes sense. And I think that was an interesting, that was an interesting way to approach it that ostensibly would mean that you carried on average less risk, right? Your positions occasionally could go down to zero. And then you would say, oh, you know what? I'm going to wait for the CPI print. And if the CPI print disappoints and I get the result that I want in a particular asset, I'm going to get back into it. And so you almost, it's like basically you monetize a part of that trend, then you wait for a retracement and then you get back into it. And then you hope that when the trend reestablishes itself, you'll go past the prior peak. Before we dig into Toggle, could you give us some idea of the progress and maybe the history, a, a short version of, of dealing with unstructured data? How is AI different from, say, what Palantir did 20 years ago or what StatArb firms have been doing before that? So I think, okay, there are a lot of elements to answering this question, but I would say that broadly, there have just been aspects of the algorithm that have improved in terms of being able to, and this is a specific feature of the large language model, to be able to predict based on the pattern, the structure of a sentence, the next word. And that, oversimplifying hugely, really opened up the possibility of doing a much better job of pulling apart a piece of text understanding the relationships between different entities in this. And once you're able to accomplish this, it means that instead of just doing a keyword search that says, okay, all I really am looking for is every time when the words positive and earnings appear together or when the outlook and bright appear together, you're able to actually understand sometimes the much more nuanced relationships when somebody is still being, let's say, very upbeat about the outlook, but uses a different word, uses maybe the implication that things are going to be good without explicitly referring to it. And so while that's only just one aspect of it, I'm trying to effectively paint the picture where once you were able to create algorithms that had that ability, the amount that you could extract from the text, and this is what I mostly mean when I say or think about unstructured data, just rose correspondingly. And actually, by the way, I think we're only at the start of this. I think at the moment, there's a lot of excitement about being able to take in a piece of text and then summarize it according to the question that the user is asking, which is exciting, right? If you're saying, hey, can you just summarize from this piece of text the portion where if let's say this is an earnings tra transcript where the CEO is discussing the outlook for next year and this is the, a large language model will be able to go in there, find the section and give you back the sort of the three, four key points about the CEO's outlook. However, most unstructured data, especially in finance, contains also a lot of data. There will be tables, there'll be charts. That is currently still difficult to retrieve, but is absolutely the sort of the next frontier, because what you would then also want to do is ask the system, let's give you an example of a simple question that somebody might have been asking. When the SVB crisis was unfolding, a lot of people were wondering, oh, what other banks are out there with a large amount of uninsured deposits? Because that seemed to be the trigger for a run of the bank and ultimately the government needing to step in. You can be certain that most large investment banks had written a research piece sometime in the last six months that actually contained that information, right? Because it would be a piece on regional banks. And as part of that, they're doing the overview. They're saying, oh, by the way, the earnings trajectory here looks good. They have some long duration exposure. Oh, and by the way, some of these banks seem like they have quite a lot of uninsured deposits. Like it was a known problem. This was not something that people were entirely unaware of, which is what made it, I think, all the more surprising, especially from a regulated point of view, that this came to be so sudden and urgent. Point being, you would have loved to have been able to access that exact piece of information very quickly as things were happening. But it was hard because you would have done a keyword search 
in an online portal, you would have gotten 60 PDF documents with titles that were more or less descriptive. And it was up to you to find the right one and then in the text discover the tables that have that information. A large language model, to the extent that it can ingest that information as well, should ultimately be able to answer that question, much like an analyst that has read and completely memorized a report like this, right? It was almost, if you remember the movie uh, Rain Man, if you had somebody like that who just is able to literally have instant perfect recall of any bit of information from something that they have read, that's what a large language model should be able to do. And how is that different or how does that give you an advantage over what, say, AQR and Bridgewater have been doing for years? Because I think that this technology has been improving for everybody at the same speed. I don't think that they somehow had access to this before all of us, right? I think this is genuinely something that has happened <clears throat> over the last 12 months. They, like everybody else, are trying to figure out ways to adopt it and use it for their processes. But I think it is a meaningful leap for them too, relative to the technology, whatever proprietary tech that we're using internally before. And I think that they were a step ahead of everybody else in terms of how they systematized some aspects of their research and their investing and so on. But it's not as though they had a large language model five years ago and the rest of us are only getting it now. They too are seeing it for the first time. They too are thinking about this along with all of the rest of us. And maybe the only difference will be that they will end up being the group that figures out the fastest how you can benefit from it. So you had the advantage of GPT-1 was already out, I think, when you started Toggle. So why don't you tell us a little bit, first of all, tell us what it is briefly, and then tell us the founding story, because it is interesting. So the background for a lot of us at Toggle was in investing. My co-founder was at Brevin Howard. Obviously, we talked about the, the career trajectory that I've had up to that point. And we always felt like we had relatively inadequate infrastructure for a for data processing. So if I take you back to that anecdote that I was mentioning when I was doing my PhD thesis, I really realized the value of being able to process the data carefully and thoughtfully, but it was also incredibly time consuming, right? I ended up spending months on a single problem. You don't have that kind of time in investing. So wouldn't it be interesting if you could employ the power of cloud compute and some of these AI algorithms to, on your behalf, monitor all of these different connections that exist in the world. So the, the connection between the yield curve and the banks, the connection between the oil price and the drillers, the, the oil producers, and so on. If you could codify a lot of that, you could, in, in essence, create what is now Toggle, which is this intelligent data analytics platform that would highlight for you dislocations and going back in history, figure out what the likely set of outcomes would be. And this was what I always found so impressive and valuable about my time with, with, with Druckenmiller, which is he was able to contextualize what was happening in the market today with the experience from before. And I think that is difficult to do unless you've yourself spent a lot of time just studying history of the market or if you've actually lived through it. And even then you needed to have a very good, like he did, memory. So you'd have a 20 basis point sell-off in, in, in the in US tenure. And he might be like, I remember back in 86 when this was happening in the next three months, you ended up having a run-up in banks and so on. This is what Toggle is able to, in effect, create for you, this degree of institutional memory, because they'll be able to say, ah, the event that you're currently interested in has happened a few times before, the asset that you're particularly looking at behaved typically this way. That immediately gives you a baseline so that if you then have a view that disagrees with how history has typically dealt with this, at least you know what your departure is. And you can probably assume that most traders will be positioned much more consistent with the way historical experience they should be. So you stand to gain quite a lot if you're right that history proves to be this the whole thing like this time is different now. With Toggle, because everything was automated, sorry, this was a little bit of a detour, but coming back to the arc of the story, that with Toggle, what has happened is that we needed to communicate all of these findings to users who are humans, not robots. And so we employed large language models even three years ago 
because we wanted to articulate everything that the system was finding in a language that an analyst might use to tell you about an interesting chart, about an interesting relationship, and so on. Up until early last year, this would have been a monologue. The system would find something, write it up, and give it to you. The best way to describe the exciting thing that has happened now is that the LLMs have matured to the point where you can have a dialogue, meaning the system highlights a piece of analysis or dislocation for you. You ask a follow-up question. The system understands that and either reruns the analysis or gives you access to some other data that answers your question. And that is, I think, tremendously exciting if you are in data analytics space, because it really completely obliterates the bar between you and me and the data that we have. I'd love to get into the nuts and bolts of this. Can you tell us what a knowledge graph is and why it's important to toggle? Very good question. The knowledge graph is, in essence, a kind of a hierarchy, a sort of organization that reflects our best understanding of how different components of the market and the economy interact with each other. And to avoid staying at this abstract level, it is effectively a roadmap that allows the machine to understand that a move in the U.S. Treasury market is likely to have an impact on assets, not only in the U.S., but also beyond, while the slowdown in ice cream sales in Auckland, New Zealand, is unlikely to have any implications for peaks and troughs in the NASDAQ index. And that seems trivial. You think, okay, that is obvious. Why do you need this? But it's not obvious to a machine because we attach content to every variable. Based on your context and market experience, you anticipate some sort of economic relationship to exist between certain things and not between other things. A machine doesn't really see it that way. It just sees a lot of data. And if you tell it to explore every possible pairing, you're not only left with a combinatorially impossible problem to compute, it also results in a lot of relations that are completely spurious. To a statistician, this is not an unusual thing. If you give me enough data, let's say that I'm trying to, to do a linear regression, I have six variables that I need to estimate, six sensitivities, six factors, and you give me enough data, I can actually create a perfect fit. It'll look on paper as though I have actually found the unlock the mystery to the market, but it's all bogus. I've just given you enough degrees of freedom for the system to be able to tweak it around long enough until it's found a perfect fit. The same thing happens with the AI knowledge graph. If you don't impose these economic restrictions, the system will continue to create what in effect are spurious relationships and a statistical version of these hallucinations that we worry about. How do you know what is relevant? I just recently found out that Bloomberg has New York subway schedules. I know a lot of folks struggle now with what data sets do you use? Should we be using all of Reddit? How do you guys decide where to draw the line? That is a very difficult question to answer because there's always this temptation to use everything that you have access to. And the reason why this temptation in the past has been easy to resist is that most of us didn't have the infrastructure to even process the small amounts of data, let alone everything that was available. As we get access to platforms like Toggle, that limitation falls away entirely. Computationally, you can certainly process all that data. And this is where the knowledge graph itself actually takes on added importance. Let me give you an example of how this works with Toggle specifically. You in effect, outsource to the machine the ordering of importance of all of the data series for a specific asset and do so for every conceivable asset. And what I mean by this is the following. Let's say that your knowledge graph suggests that there are these 500 variables ranging from earnings growth to endless expectations for revenues to trading volume to some macro variables. These are generally things that matter for a specific stock, let's say. And we know that they won't all matter at the same time. I think part of the beauty, but also challenge in investing is that you know the scope of variables that should matter, but they don't all matter at the same time. This was the brilliance of guys like Stan is they were always zero in 
or one or two variables that really mattered and completely disregard the rest. Now, as you have more data, the temptation is to then add to this scope, right? You say, but maybe subway schedules could tell me something about the trading volume and therefore the volatility in the market, because if actually that day the trains are really delayed, and I assume that some traders take the train to get a trading floor, they're not going to be there, blah, blah, blah. You can come up with a narrative that's going to sound vaguely plausible. What a system like Toggle will do, will say, fine, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just include it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look for this location. So I'm going to look for days when there was a particularly bad outage in some way. I'm going to go back to all of the other times when there was a particularly bad outage, let's say on the one to three line that feeds down into Wall Street. And I will check whether or not that has subsequently had any impact on the trading volume. And if it doesn't, eventually it'll just disregard that piece of data because it's very Darwinian. It creates an insight. It's then able to immediately observe whether or not the insight that it generated that suggested that there should be positive or negative impact. If continually the impact goes in the other direction, whatever finding it originally had was totally spurious. And so it automatically within this large edifice that's the knowledge graph, that edge just starts to wither away. It just doesn't get displayed. It's still there, but the bar in order to show it to you, which means that maybe 80% of the time the relationship really needs to hold, it's just unable to reach it. And so it'll have to go through a long period of time when that relationship maybe reestablishes itself before you will ever see it. So you're to an extent shielded from this anxiety about which data I should use because the system says, look, I'm just going to always look at everything. I'm going to robustly test it. And if I find that a certain relationship is coming back, you'll know about it. And is there a reinforcement aspect to that? Since it obviously it has your portfolio and it knows your trades, it, it must have some insight into what's important to you. So this is the very interesting next frontier for us specifically. We don't have that capability currently in the system, but what you just mentioned, I think is a very exciting next, almost like the meta investigation. Currently, all of the data is about analyzing assets and the impact on those assets from changes in the data. The next thing that'll be interesting to observe and analyze will be your response to the asset prices response to the changes in data. And so that I can then come back to you and say, you know what? You should really stop buying the dips because you're terrible at buying the dips. You're always too early. And whenever you buy them, you then see the stock go down more and then you get out just when it actually bottoms. If I can show you cold hard data on this, it probably is going to drive your behavior. At a minimum, you may do it less. At best, you become better at it, right? You just wait longer and then you buy into that dip, like your patience becomes more pronounced. It's not that the tech to do this doesn't exist. It's more just that we needed to stage how we would build certain aspects of this. But the very active area currently is absolutely this sort of behavioral feedback that we would be able to give you. So we all know OpenAI now, but there's lots of groups out there. I'm curious, who are the providers for the LLM or do you guys roll your own? We So we don't do our own, but we have been testing a number of them. We have a very strong partnership with Microsoft, have had it from the beginning. So the foundation for everything that we have done was the GPT series of models. But of course, we are always keeping an eye on everything else that's out there. So we've also experimented with a number of other models. Our edge is in the apps that you're able to leverage with these models rather than in building the models themselves. I think a lot of resources are currently being poured into making these better and better. And that's great. Each of these improvements helps us tremendously. Our focus, however, has been on the investment analytics and the investment processing as opposed to large language model development. And so how do you benchmark that internally? Do you have standard tests that you ask the system and see how it fares? Yes. Yeah. No, there are some, there are definitely a series of tests that you can subject the system to see effectively how it responds and so on. And there are qualitative aspects to this. Sometimes you can just see that what you're getting isn't quite what you would have hoped to get either because the answer is too short or because the summary is not really getting to the gist of what you're looking for. Because we focus a lot on actual data analysis, 
we have fewer of that problems. I think ultimately you want to see that the system identified the right data, that it ran the right analytical tools, and that it gave you the results that you were after. Whether or not it then summarized those results in an eloquent kind of language is ultimately a little bit less critical for the mission that we set ourselves to. So we tend to think of AI as free or, or low cost, but at scale, it, it adds up. How do you folks control costs? Where does the data come from? So the data and the AI here are two separate things. The data obviously is something that we source from a range of different providers, the likes of we have Refinitiv, which is part of the LSEC group. You have NASDAQ and so on. So we get it from every source that generally is viewed as having integrity and useful information on Wall Street. AI is a lot like cloud compute, effectively demand-driven. So depending on just how much usage you require, your bill will go up and down with that. And I think the pricing schemes here actually have not really been completely established. I think everybody's trying to figure out how the pricing model is going to work, in part because the owners of a lot of these models are also trying to see what the ecosystem of apps built on top of them is going to look like. What kind of is this going to be a high margin app, a low margin app, If and it ends up being just a huge boost to productivity and there's a lot of economic gain. I'm sure that some of that will be harvested by the owners of the of the models themselves. In short, however, I think this is something where it's, there's going to be a lot of volatility over the next 12 to 18 months. Just try and figure that out. How do you update it in real time? Think of the LLM as being your translator. And the LLM is really just there to, on your request, access a database or an analytical tool in order to run the analysis that you're interested in or to answer the question or read the news and so on. It's the databases themselves and the feeds themselves that are being updated. And so long as you're keeping your data feed current, each time when the large language model is having to access it, it will be as updated as your databases, right? So if you have prices that only go as recent as yesterday, the best that the system will be able to do when you ask it, how is Tesla doing today? will be like, as of yesterday's close, it was up this much. If, on the other hand, you're constantly feeding in intraday data, if you ask it at 9.30, the answer will be different than if you ask it at 11.30, because there will be an update to that price, similar with all of the other macroeconomic data. So the large language model in no way limits your ability to have updating as frequently as you're able to get it. All of that is really more on the data side. What does that actually look like? So you've got all these data feeds coming in, and then you've got an LLM that you have to run on it. Is it going to run on them separately, or is it going to run, or does the data come in through the filtered through your knowledge graphs? Is that an accurate way to think about it? So let me see if I can describe this in a way that I think will make sense, which is think of the knowledge graph as being the way to really organize the data in a very large database, right? It's just a little bit like if you think about doing a Google search, we effectively have now a better understanding of how PageRank really transformed our ability to get relevant information because it weighed the importance of certain links over others. Similarly, Knowledge Graph within the database is saying, oh, this data or this data series is very important for these assets, this data series is very important for these assets. Within that asset, some data is more important than other. The large language model then sits on top of all of this. And when you say, I would like to know whether or not analysts are getting more or less bearish on the outlook for, let's say, Nike, the system will go into that database and we'll say, okay, Nike has connections to these kinds of earnings information. Ah, one of them is analyst estimates for revenue. Let me see what the latest value is there. And it'll then fetch that value and come back to you and then nicely wrap it in some English sentence that will say, here is the latest on this. The analysts actually over the last few weeks have turned more bearish on this specific security. Here is the chart. Here's the data and so on. So Gary Gensler thinks that the AI risk to markets will come from everyone using the same data sets or two or three large data sets. And what are your thoughts on that? Let's think about this for a second. 
pretty much everybody on Wall Street is already using Bloomberg. I would say that's the default data set. So we've been in this situation for 40 years now. I'm not sure that is where we would pin the problems for micro crises just because we're all on the Bloomberg terminal. And I think similarly here, we it's unlikely at this stage that just because we have better technology at processing data, we are all going to arrive at different conclusions. You have to remember that even if I actually tell you and give you the exact same information for a particular security and the outlook, two people might have very different trading horizons. In other words, let's say Tesla is up 5%, there'll be an investor who will say, oh, this is just the beginning of the trend. It's my time to get in because I love momentum stocks. Somebody who is more of a sort of short-term trader will say, oh, time to take my profits because I was actually buying it when it was selling off. Like I like sold off securities. I like value buys. And so I think there is such a large variation in decision frameworks that exists on Wall Street that just because the accuracy of the information is coming in, I'm not sure that it's going to make everybody act the same way. It's a different situation if we say, okay, but if everybody stops making decisions and it's the AI making all the decisions, yes, in that situation, he would be right. I just don't think that we'll get to that point anytime soon. I'm curious as Toggle as a business, what is your go-to-market strategy now? What's the use case for somebody like a PM at a large firm versus maybe a financial advisor at an RIA? How are people actually using this? The best way to describe it is that it's almost like we we build into their process a kind of this the all-knowing investment analyst, like an investing savant. So again, when they want to look up a certain piece of information, when they want to run a little bit of analysis we hopefully make it so easy for them to be able to do this because they can just articulate what they would like to get done, that it becomes widely applicable for both portfolio managers at hedge funds, but actually ultimately also individual traders who spend a little bit of time thinking about the market, asking questions and would like to have a kind of a counterparty to answer these questions, run some analysis and so on. So the business model for us very much has been no matter the size of the organization, to offer this capability. And then the main difference being that a large organization like a bank might want to integrate also their own data into this and therefore result, end up with a kind of a custom knowledge graph because it'll be, oh, we have the knowledge graph with the data that we bring to this, but we then also incorporate some of the data that you have internally about flows and implied fall and so on. And then to some of the smaller organizations that say, look, actually, we don't have a lot of proprietary data. We would just love to do a better job with the data that we already know we have access to, but we're not using. So for them, I think the advantage of Toggle is that they're suddenly getting extraordinary insights from very ordinary data. Like it's the stuff that they've always had access to. They were always, it was always there, but now they actually have the capability to process it, get insights from it and so on. So for many of them, that's already a huge step up. When I talk to people about Toggle, they always reply, so it's just a Bloomberg replacement, but it's really more than that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your partnership with interactive brokers, where they're offering this to the folks who are on their platform. So it's interesting. Bloomberg obviously comes up a lot in our conversations. And I think from our point of view, we are complementary rather than competitive with that because at its very core, in addition to having an excellent messaging platform, Bloomberg really is, it's a database. It's giving you access to an extraordinary amount of data, but it feels like what you might refer to as the IKEA of financial information. They, you do have to assemble it before you can use it. I would think Toggle re- relative to Bloomberg is almost like the task rabbit. Like it's effectively doing that assembly for you. And so I don't think that we don't generate our own data. We don't, we don't compete in that sphere we would in effect take the data that Bloomberg has and just help Bloomberg users maybe utilize it a little bit more effectively. Example being, let's say jobless claims get released. Everybody's always trying to figure out, okay, is this a good number? Is this a bad number? Togo can ultimately figure that out very quickly because it can take the number, look at past similar releases and see which assets react the most and reliably so. That's the sort of thing where Bloomberg data and Toggle's technology can work hand in hand. I would imagine it must be very competitive right now in AI talent. Do you have any advice for hiring? 
So you're right. There is definitely uh, a lot of competition, but I think that we've been pretty fortunate on that side because I think there's genuinely a lot of interest in the technology that we have and continue to develop. And so if you have an interesting mission and you have an interesting product, you will be able to attract talented people just that way. It's not, in other words, it's not like we are, it's not completely commoditized. It's not all AI is created equal. I think that the applications of it really vary. And people who have a passion for financial markets are generally drawn to products that seem like they could really transform the way people invest. And we are definitely at the forefront of that. And do you have any particular filters for that? Do you try to filter out the economics PhDs? (laughs) It's a good question. I will. (laughs) I have to think about that. I would say if your only experience is an economics PhD, I would say there would be probably we would need to see some real evidence of practical applications or some drive to do things in the real world in order for us to, to bring you on. I would say that the tech itself is new, so I don't think you can really ask for a lot of experience specifically with large language models, but I think what we like to see is some very self-motivated um, interest in trying to build frameworks to understand the market, to do data analysis and so on. And that doesn't have to even be an AI. It could be any other aspect of data science. But the fact that you have an interest in trying to take some data and glean insights from it, I think it's the right, I want to say, it's what we like to see in that ultimately that is really what we do. At its very simplest, we're taking in a lot of data and we're generating a very small number of insights on behalf of a very large number of clients. If your drive is to work with the data, try to develop better frameworks to process it, understand it, use it, leverage it, there can be many ways in which we we, we can see this. There are obviously people who will have come from financial markets and trading background who will have mostly spent time looking at charts and so on. I would say that's less helpful because they often end up just making decisions based on some visuals. And I don't think that goes nearly deep enough for what we try to do because we are ultimately trying to find something that would be repeatable and not just dependent on your on, on your eyeballs. Do you think there'll ultimately be a, a divergence between the folks who are specialists in imagery and folks in, in text? Or do you think it's just all going to be one field? Oh, no, I think there is going to be specialization because there are different methodologies that you'll need. As the technology gets better and more specialized, I think that you are going to have to develop differing approaches across the two things. There will be overlap because ultimately, let's take finance. People are sometimes able to detect a trend just by actually seeing an upturn in the stock, right? You don't know that it's a trend, but I think that you aren't really able to articulate it mathematically, but you can point to it in the chart. If the AI is able to then also take that and say, hey, you know what? I'm seeing something that could be an uptrend. It's not neat enough for me to put it in a, I can't describe it formulaically, but I can recognize something like that again a few other times. I am able to then start detecting patterns on the basis of that as well. So I do think there is going to be use and cross-pollination between the two. But ultimately, I think there are going to be different groups of people working on these two fields. Jan Zalagi, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for your excellent insights. Thank you. Really good to be here. And I appreciate the invite. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with your friends. Thank you.